As I hope you will have picked up from the uh, reading this morning, we are starting a new series over the coming weeks looking at Jesus' letters to the seven churches in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. And it is indeed useful for us to look at these letters because even though they were written 2,000 years ago, they were written to the churches in Asia Minor, they could easily have been written about, the, about seven of the churches um, in East Kilbride. Us included, Claremont very much included. And all that we read in these seven letters, whilst being specific to one church at a time, because they are addressed to one church at a time, they are in fact applicable to all the churches that are being written to in these chapters, and in fact they are written to all churches throughout all of time and throughout all of history. Each letter ends with the same verse, whoever has ears, let them hear. And we pray this morning that that would indeed be us. Because we realize that we cannot um, silo our experience and we cannot silo um, um, the things that we um, do well or the things that we are struggling with. Because if we were able to do so, if you were able to say, you know, oh, well, we've got these things sorted, but you guys in this other church don't have these things sorted, that means that we're better at this whole church malarkey than you are. That allows us to hold and to lord over others the things that we do well whilst um, perhaps ignoring or perhaps being blind to the things that we don't do so well. So in fact, all of these letters apply to all of the churches and still apply to all churches today. And as we look at the seven letters over the coming weeks, we're going to see that they essentially follow the same pattern. So in, in, in Revelation chapter 1, John, who has written um, the book of Revelation, has a vision of the risen Jesus. He has a vision of the risen Lord Jesus, and he describes that in chapter 1, and then he uses that vision to begin each and every single one of his um, letters. Different parts of the description begin the letters to the different churches, and they form the basis for the message that follows. And this is useful, this is important, because actually this demonstrates to us the authority of the power of the risen Christ. So we get a description of Jesus that forms the beginning of the letter. We then get a description of Christ's knowledge of the church's situation. All before we get a specific word which is relevant and which is pertinent to the conduct of that church, followed up by a promise to those who conquer and overcome. And it is our hope that as we look at these letters that we won't be blinded to our own shortcomings as a church that we won't be persuaded that we are immune from some of the things that are being written about this morning. Or that we won't sit here and we won't look at these letters and think, oh, well, that doesn't apply to us because that was written all these years ago and it was written to a church in a very, very different context and a very different situation. That is not the case. It applies to us today just as much as it applied to the church in Ephesus and as much as it applied to the other churches that we're going to be looking at over the coming weeks. Because whilst we might be 2,000 years on from when John was writing his letter to the churches in Asia Minor, our human condition is still very much the same. And as we look at these letters, we will see that above it all, even when the church struggles and when its conduct falls short of the standard that Christ expects of us, as it so often does, we can see that Christ is still in authority, that he still reigns, even through and even despite our own failures. But even more than this, 
Do you know, this is not an opportunity to read these letters and think, oh, well, we've fallen short, that must be us out. We've missed the standard, we've missed the bar that's been set, therefore that must be us out of the game. Instead, what we see in each case is that Christ, who is Lord, offers his church an opportunity for redemption and return. He reminds his church that he is, in fact, Lord over all creation and gives them a renewed vision for what it is to be the church, to be the bride of Christ. And as we turn to look specifically at the church in Ephesus this morning, we see that there are essentially three things that Jesus says to his church in these verses. The first thing, Jesus speaks the truth about and speaks the truth to the church in Ephesus. Now, the church in Ephesus was incredibly significant in the early church movement, in the early history of Christianity. It was incredibly significant. We think that Paul spent between two and three years in the church in Ephesus. It made, during this time, it made significant inroads into the culture, into the city, into the people. So much so that they were on the brink of rioting. You will remember that from when I preached in Acts chapter 19 just a few weeks ago. And because of the time that Paul spent here, we see that the church was incredibly well taught. In fact, we actually think that the Apostle John spent time in the church in Ephesus as well. So the church was incredibly well taught. They had a firm foundation in the things of the faith. And in fact, Jesus commends them for their good works. Now, we can understand their good works under two categories this morning in this passage. First of all, we see that their deeds were good, and second of all, we see that their theology was good. Because the church were faithful in pursuing the gospel. They knew the things that they should be doing, and they knew the reasons that they should be doing them. There there was absolutely no question over their Christian characteristics. If anyone asked, they would have been able to point you to the church and to those who belonged to it. They didn't need to be persuaded, that is the church. The church did not need to be persuaded to do the things that they had been called to do. And as they did so, we can see that this was not a church that were a kind of flash in the pan church. They lasted year in and year out. They persevered in their good deeds. Even when it was difficult, even when it was unpleasant, even when it was tricky for them, they they persevered in their good deeds. But on top of this, they were also diligent in recognizing false teachers and apostles who would have wanted to have dragged them away from the things that they had been taught by those genuine teachers and apostles. Now, I I, I think today in um, in October 2019 that we, we kid ourselves on if we think that false teachers are not present in our churches today. As we seek to, to, to look out for these things, we, we can identify false teachers by, by looking at the message that they are presenting to the church. If someone doesn't increase our love for Jesus by telling us or pointing us towards his greatness, then these people are false teachers. If all we are offered week in and week out is little more than some kind of pep talk encouraging us to rely on our own resources and uh, upon our own agency to bring about the good things that only God can offer, then these people are false teachers. And all too often, when the church is pulled in by these false teachers, they become no different to the world around them. 
when the distinction between church and culture is blurred in an effort to become little more than than relevant or, or, or topical, we need to be incredibly vigilant that what is being preached and what is being presented is Christ in his fullness and not simply the bits that are inoffensive or inconsequential that ultimately lead to no real difference or distinction from the world in which we live. And we can see that the Ephesian church, having been commended by Jesus for their good deeds and for their good theology, we can see that the Ephesian church had secured themselves against such people and against such advances of a false gospel in order to continue pursuing the heart and the character of the God that they knew to be true. So that's the first thing. The second thing was that despite all of this, the church had abandoned the love that they had at first. And perhaps you're asking, you know, what kind of love is this? What does it look like? The love that the church had for Jesus in the first instance, this is what we are talking about here. This is what the letter is saying. The church had lost the love that it had in the first instance for Jesus the love that they had for Jesus himself. Now, this is not a kind of um, wishy-washy love that, that we perhaps are, are, are thinking about, the kind of emotionally, kind of sentimental love that we're talking about. This is a love that transforms everything that the church did and that the church does. This is the love that transforms all that they touched, all that they were involved in, all that they sought to do, The love that the Ephesian church had lost was the love that took the church from being a simple service provider. It took the church from from simply working to some kind of generic social good. It took the church from offering some kind of overall spiritual enrichment to the lives of folks who came to the church and folks that they engaged with. The kind of love that they had lost was the kind of love that took the church to a place where they were able to be the church that Jesus saved and redeemed and rescued from the grips of sin and death. This is the love that we sing of when we sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And the question for us today is, do you love him? Do you love him? And we're not talking about, about serving him because we know that doing stuff in and for church does not necessarily equal love of God. Because our good deeds are not under scrutiny here. The Ephesians' good deeds were not being questioned. But instead, it is the motivation for our good deeds that are being wondered about. Because if we do all the right things, if we say all the right words and look for all intents and purposes to be following the pattern laid out by the kingdom of God, but our our motivation for these things is not love. Love of God, love of others, love motivated from the very core foundation that Jesus died to save us from our sins. If our motivation for these things is not love, then they are worthless. The situation that the Ephesians were in I, I, I think as I was writing this, I, I, it's difficult for us to get a handle on. What does it look like to have lost that first love? 
Perhaps you, you can um, imagine, um, or perhaps you can remember, the day that you held your first child. Um, you're standing in the hospital and you're holding this baby and you're overcome by, by wonder and awe and by amazement and by the fact that this child is yours. And what a gift it is from God. And then fast forward four years later when you're standing in the aisle in Sainsbury's and there happens to be bags of sweets all around and it's going mental. This child is going um, um, screaming and it's kicking on the floor and you're thinking, is this the same child that I held four years ago that I loved so much? I've not been there yet. (laughs) Yet. I know it's coming. This is what we're talking about. There's that difference between that first love you experience the day that you hold your child to that day when you think, do I love this child? And the truth is that you do, but, but it's different. It's kind of waned a wee bit. The Ephesian church had lost the fervor and the enthusiasm and, and, and the experience of the thing that had led them to be converted in the first place. They'd lost something of the, 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 the difference that knowing Jesus and their lives made. The experience of the love of God, which is born out of knowledge, or out of knowing that we are at heart irredeemable sinners, saved only by the grace of God, that had become old hat to the Ephesian church. And this is not this is not new. The Ephesian church were not alone in this. Paul says to the church in Corinth that unless all that they do, unless all their actions and everything, unless it is rooted in love, it is worthless. It is like a clanging symbol. It says that in in 1 Corinthians 13. And in fact, our obedience very often matters less than the heart and the motivation behind it. David says this repeatedly in the Psalms. The writer to the Hebrews highlights this. It is easy to do the things that are demanded of us, It is easy to to go through the motions and to look the way that Christians should look. But the pursuit of a heart that loves God, acting out of love towards others, and remembering that it is that love that holds us all together in the assurance and the hope of salvation, that is what Jesus demands of the Ephesian church, and that is what is demanded of us today. And the third thing that Jesus says to his church in the midst of all of this, because we might think actually, this church, the Ephesian church is not doing well. They're you know, beyond the pale. They're not really worth saving or worth helping. But actually Jesus says to them that we are not without hope. And we see that Jesus offers his church a, a, a three-point plan to get them and indeed to get us back on the right track. And we see this in verse 5. They are to remember, they are to repent, and they are to redo. They are to remember the things that they had done. They are to remember their first love, that is Jesus. They are to remember the attitude and the excitement that led and guided them at first. Following that, they are to repent of their waywardness, They are to repent of their lack of love. They are to repent of the lackluster attitudes that have snuck into their practice and replaced the thing that was the foundation of their Christian faith and belief. And having done them, they are to redo the things that they did at the start. 
They are to redo and, 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 and relive the types of lives that they lived upon their initial conversion. They are to redo the, thing that, 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 the things that led them to conversion and led them to be the established and influential church that they had grown into. How long has it been since we have felt this way about Jesus? How long has it been since we have been enthused and excited about the prospect of coming to church every week? How readily do we come here and sit simply because it's what we've always done or because it's what is expected of us? How long has it been since we have considered the motivations behind the different things that we do? And don't get me wrong, I, I realize it's, it's easy to get tied up and to get caught up in the next thing, you know, the next program or, or the next conference, or the next event, you know, particularly in the Christian calendar. It's October and already we're beginning to think about Christmas. And then after that, it will be Easter. We get tied up in the planning and the preparation that we are rarely, uh, the, the, we get so tied up, sorry, in the planning and the preparation that we rarely stop to think or consider the attitudes which lie behind all of these things. And unless love is the foundation for all that we do, that is, love of God, love for one another, and love for those that we come into contact with, these things ultimately are useless. And the Ephesian church is doing so much that is good. The majority of what has taken place in Ephesus, the majority of what has been produced from the church is what could be called good fruit. But all of this is at threat of being rendered worthless by they're bad attitudes. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 says, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind our sins sweep us away. And this was the, the situation that the Ephesian church found them in. Even their good things were at, at risk of being wiped away by their bad attitudes. And in fact, if, if we don't work to follow the things that Jesus set out, we see what will happen in, verse, in the second part of it, verse 5. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. The church will become like the world around it. There will be no distinction between it and the society and the culture in which it's operating. The lines will be so blurred, the water so muddied, that we won't know which way is up, or indeed we won't be able to see the intrinsic and lasting value in anything that we do. Because this is value that is only afforded by the power and the might of God who first loved us. Value that is only afforded by the salvation God granted us freely, and value that is only afforded by the fact that these things are lasting and eternal. We, we are not reading an account of a church that is one million miles away from us this morning, both in history and in terms of their context. We're all capable of falling into the same trap as the Ephesian church. But here, this morning, if we are in that place, if we are in that rut, if we are in the same situation as the Ephesian church, we see that there is a way out. That even though we have been saved, God continues to save his church and wants to see it return to the place and the position it held in the world. The church, Claremont, can fall so far. 
we can reflect very little of God's initial intention for us. But that does not mean that we're out of the game. That does not mean that, that, that God washes his hands of us. In fact, I think actually just the opposite. The first letter to the church is this letter to the Ephesians in Revelation chapter 2. It's a lifeline. It's a wake-up call. But we do need to remember to repent and to redo. We need to, to remember that Christ saved us, even though we were utterly undeserving. We need to repent of any attitudes and motivations that don't reflect this in our lives. And we need to pursue the things we did at first when we were excited and amazed that a sovereign God would be willing to die on a cross in order to return a fallen creation to fullness of relationship with him. Sometimes we get so focused on the, on the next things, on the next program. But our passage reminds us that so often the things that are foundational at the beginning of our walk with God are, in fact, the things that matter above all the rest. It is, in fact, the plain things that are the main things. And we pray that this would be true for us as a church today. And we pray that this would be the attitude that motivates all that we do. Amen.